I was visiting with a member of our congregation this week, and she said to me, it was just so classic, she said, uh, you know, in January, I found out that the teaching team at Christ Community was going to go through 1 Corinthians. And uh, she looked me in the eye, she said, I was really wondering if you guys <laughs> were going to do a message on chapter 11. So uh, let me just uh, let you know right away, yes, we are. <laughs> and secondly, how I wish the Apostle Paul was here. I've never wished that more in my life. <laughs> this text is, uh, well, it's difficult to process as a modern person in our day, in our cultural context. And so let me just say a couple of things. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I hope you'll still stay in your seat because we're glad you're here. It may sound, these words, a bit archaic or out of sync with the Western world, and uh, I'd encourage you to listen. I think there's some things we can gain but primarily focus on who Jesus is because this is a very specific letter to a church and how they did church in the first century. So I hope you'll at least listen and I hope it's meaningful to you. I, I pray for that. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, and you may also have some pushbacks, right? I mean, I don't know what you thought when you heard me read those. Uh, first blush, it might seem like uh, kind of chauvinistic stuff. It may seem a bit like a religious excuse for the exploitation of women. Or you may be like, what is Paul saying? <laughs> goodness. So I just asked if you would uh, hang in there with me and uh, we're going to try to give it our best shot. Deal? I mean, and let me just say as a teacher, uh, let, me, let me be transparent here a little bit. This text is also difficult for me. So have a little compassion for me this morning. Uh, I think this is true. My memory gets a little bit sketchy in my age, but I think uh, in 27 years, uh, I have never given a sermon on this text. <laughs> Maybe it's because I've been a chicken 27 years, I don't know. But uh, no, let me say, the text is difficult, but please, know that at Christ's community, we teach the whole Bible all the way through. And uh, we teach it with literary integrity, and we don't just pick and, choose, pick and choose passages that we like or we can all figure out really easier or make us feel good. We are committed to teach the entire scriptures. We believe every part is inspired by God and profitable. But I want to suggest we probably ought to pray a little bit before we tackle this one. What do you think? So let's pray and ask God to guide us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. This is a difficult text for us. And I pray that the Spirit of God would speak into each heart and mind. Uh, only you can do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the scaffolding of the message today, I'd like to raise three questions. If you're taking notes or following along sort of in the organization of what I want to say, I'd like to raise three questions that I think are important for us as we navigate this terrain. First question is, why are these words so hard to hear? Why are they so hard to hear? Second question is, what do we need to hear in these words? And third, yes, how should we live into these words? So let's start the first question. Why are these words so hard to hear? I want to suggest three things right off the bat that I think are important for us to keep in our mind. First, these words are hear, hard to hear because all of us in this room know that there has been a great deal of past and there is a great deal of present ill treatment of women around the globe that is sanctioned under a religious guise. And this is something we have a deep concern for and we should for its great injustice and evil. 
Secondly, let me also say these words are, here, are hard to hear because there is such a vast cultural distance from the first century Greco-Roman world to the 21st century of our world. If you were to take a World War II letter, even written not long ago, really, in human history, from a husband to his bride back home, maybe he's writing from France, you pick up the letter, you go, whoa, what is all in behind here? And can you imagine a letter written with this specificity for 2,000 years? There's a lot going behind the scenes that we just do not know. Third, these words are often hard to hear because we tend to pluck them from the context of which they are written in the biblical text. Now, all of us can make any literary document say anything if we pluck it out of the context. And that's true of the Bible. We can make it say the opposite, the very opposite, it says, if we do not understand and take into account the context. It's like real estate. You always hear the mantra real estate. What is the three most important parts of real estate? Everyone, location, location, location. And in understanding a biblical text or any literary text, the most important thing to remember is context, context, context. So we need to grasp that right away. These words centered in chapter 11, are a part of a broader stroke of thinking that Paul gives us in this entire letter. We need to remember early on that Paul says that the Corinthian church was having a lot of trouble and they needed to wise up and grow up. It's a major thrust. So when we come to this chapter, I hope you have your Bible open, electronic or paper, because we're going to walk through this a bit together, where angels fear to tread. Uh, in, in chapter 11 verse 2, it is one section of thought all the way through chapter 40 or 14 through verse 40. So this is one section of thought with one main thread of thought. And that is this. Paul's focus is how people of vast different cultural ethnicities and gender differences do church on Sunday morning in the first century. That's what he's talking about. So how grasp this carefully that Paul's bottom line, his literary crescendo that he builds to in this entire section ends up in chapter 14, verse 40. Keep this in mind. Paul says, here it is. Here's the bottom line. But in all things, we should do them decently and in order. Eugene Peterson in the message brilliantly translates this or paraphrases it actually. He says this, and keep this in mind. He says, be courteous and considerate in everything. That's where Paul builds to his thoughts. So let's keep in mind a few things as we enter into this text, okay? Stay with me. We need to understand that there is a sizable challenge of cultural distance, specifically with the degree of specificity in this text. Secondly, we need to understand the importance of the context of Paul's broader letter and then his primary focus of thinking is on how to do church together in the first century. Let's also keep in mind that he has just finished a very important text in chapter 10. And the end of chapter 10 ends with this thought, whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God. In other words, we need to understand coming into this text, Paul has already said, it's not about our preferences if you're a follower of Jesus. It's not about our opinions. It's not about our personal fulfillment. All those things are important. It is really about what is most important, and that is God's glory. So keep in mind these ideas as we enter this text. These words are hard to hear for these reasons. But second question we need to look at and where we want to focus is what do we need to hear in these words? They're hard to hear, but what do we need to hear? First, 
understand that Paul has already emphasized a great deal of mystery in what he's saying. Uh, and, and I think that's important. We need spiritual wisdom given to us by the Holy Spirit to understand these words. And, and for example, in chapter 2, verse 7, let me just quote this text because it is important we don't miss this. Paul says, but we impart, as he writes, a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed even before time. That's the idea. For what? For our glory. Keep in mind this word glory as we dive in. So how I'd like us to process this is, first of all, what is Paul saying? And then what is Paul not saying? This text is not only hard, it's often taught with a very distorted lens. So let's try to navigate through this. What's Paul saying? First, I want you to notice, and I hope you have your Bible open or listen carefully, you need to notice, I need to notice Paul's literary architecture. His ideas, his thoughts are set in a scaffolding of literature. Notice, in these 15 verses of chapter 11, Paul will both explicitly and implicitly continue a reference to God's original creation design that was laid out in Genesis 1 and 2. Paul is a brilliant rabbi. He's given a commentary on Genesis 1 and 2. And he does this explicitly and implicitly in the text. So keep Genesis 1 and 2 in your mind. Paul is explaining it. Secondly, you'll also observe allusions to the Trinitarian God and the Trinitarian template of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and how that informs creation design of male and femaleness in the differences of the church. You also notice, and this is really evident when you look at the text, there's just tons, extraordinary, unbelievable repetition of one word. Do you see it? It is the word head, translated English head. Paul does something with this word. Metaphorically, it means authority, God's design of authority. But he also touches on physical human anatomy. So he does a wordplay of metaphor and actual head. So he plays back and forth with that. And then notice also the word glory. There's a repetition of glory. And Paul has something in mind here, even though it's hard for us to understand this text, he is pointing and showcasing a greater glory that he wants us to see. Also notice that the literary architecture, that's the architecture which he sets it in. But the literary architecture helps us to discover the main themes because there's lots of detail here that we can kind of get confused by. But here's the main themes that emerge. There is male and female gender distinction. There is the ordering of creation design. There is male and female, notice, equality, mutuality, in other words, togetherness, and then complementarity. We fit together, although different. That's the idea. Now, what is important for us to grasp, both in terms of Paul's train of thought and the literary structure, is the epicenter of his thinking is in verses 8 to 12. So I want to press in there with you for a moment. I want to reread it because we've got to grasp what he is saying here. This is at the heart of it. Notice what Paul says. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And notice, all things are from God. 
Now, as I've already alluded, Paul is appealing to Genesis 1 and 2. And the order and design of our Trinitarian God's original creation of his image bearers before sin and death entered the world. When we look back at Genesis 1 and 2, we see that both male and female, the Hebrew text is very explicit, are made in God's image. Now, what does it mean to be made in God's image? The Hebrew word has two ideas you and I must grasp because Paul is building on it. Make sense? The two ideas of being made in God's image are these. First, unlike other aspects of creation, humans have a unique connection to God. Connection. But also, in that unique connection, humans, male and female, have a unique reflection of God. So connection and reflection make up image. Keep that in mind. Now, the big idea we must not miss here is that God is being showcased. Paul is showcasing God's glory. And he's saying men and women are equal, of all equal worth in creation, and they are designed to be mutually interdependent. In other words, women have no less status than men, nor can a man or woman say to the other gender, I'm better than you, or I'm more important than you. See, we were designed with distinct differences within creation, yet we are created to dance together, showcasing the brilliance and beauty of the one Trinitarian God that created us. Now, Dancing is something what I wasn't created for. I think I missed that one. But Liz and I took ballroom dancing once. <laughs> Poor Liz. Uh, that's all she could take. Uh, it was brutal. It wasn't Dancing in the Stars. You have that picture of you know, Dancing with the Stars? You know how that show? It was Dancing with Herman Munster. <laughs> I mean, on a good day. I just couldn't get it. Fox trot. And I was like, I just could not get it. The teacher tried to teach me. I was a disaster. I was humiliated. So I haven't tried it again. So don't get me to try to dance. This is impossible. But I learned something in my humiliation that I will never forget. And that is that beautiful dancing is always a team effort. When you watch two people dance well, you know that it requires complementarity. There is as if two distinct people move in harmony and grace with such beauty they become as they are one in harmony. You watch it with awe. And I learned if you're going to dance well, you know what that's like. Someone has to take the lead. And someone has to follow. Now the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit is a vast mystery to us. But we have some idea that there is a threeness and oneness of Father, Son, and Spirit, and it is a dance of Trinitarian love. This is the picture Paul is painting here. There is order with distinction. There is unity and oneness, yet threeness. There is voluntary submission without any coercion. It is a beautiful dance of love. So as gendered image bearers of the triune God, we reflect this dance of love with our gender distinctions, our voluntary submission to one another, and sacrificial love for each other. This is the beautiful picture 
Paul is painting on what the local church at Corinth is to be, the new creation reality the gospel makes possible. Lived out in a fallen world for everyone to see the beauty of God. Now you also notice in verse 10 something that may jump out at you. This language of a symbol of authority, you see that. Now let me say very specifically, the original Greek text does not have explicitly the word symbol. But it is implied all the way through the structure of the language. So if you have different translations, you might see this a little bit differently. Paul is bringing in a cultural reality. The idea here is that symbols are a part of culture. They vary in cultural context. There are different cultures that reflect the beauty and diversity of the triune God in different ways. So, sparing me uh, extra emails. I do like your emails, by the way. Let me just address this question really quickly. What about long hair and head coverings today? Do I need to show up in church uh, next Sunday with... Anyway, okay. Paul is saying there are very important and very real cultural expressions of creation design in the first century, and he's unpacking it. It's a cultural context that everyone he, that read it in the first century understood as proper in their time. Now, I don't believe Paul is prescribing these very th- same things for us to today. Whew. I don't believe that. However, Paul is emphasizing the importance of sensitivity to culture and a cultural context because we're in a community. Paul uses the word traditions, you notice in verse 2, and I think he does this to lessen the kind of prescriptive nuance we often take, that it is more of a cultural form, but he is saying cultural symbols are important. They are telling in terms of sensitivity to others. So a cultural symbol in our time is manyfold. One is this right here. I have this wedding ring. This wedding ring really matters to me, and it matters to my wife. <laughs> and this week, by the way, we got to celebrate our 33rd anniversary. Is that awesome? Way to go, Liz. Thanks for hanging with me that long. But you don't have to wear this ring to be married, but it's a cultural symbol that everybody knows what it means. And there's a respect for that symbol. Another one might be like the Star Spangled Banner. We go to the Royals game or the Chiefs game, and uh, the Star Spangled Banner plays, and there's thousands of people, and many of the guys have a Chiefs hat on, a cap hat on, or a Royals cap. What do we do? We take it off. I mean, no one prescribes it, but if you don't, It's an insensitivity to the respect of that symbol to everybody else in the group. And this is what Paul is saying in the first century. This hairstyle and this veil or this covering is a cultural symbol. And he wants us to be sensitive to that. Now, in verse 10, I wish Paul was here. Don't you wish Paul was here? Paul says something very explicit and important to him. And it's this little phrase, because of the angels. That's not the California angels or something else, okay? What does Paul mean? He sees it as very important. It is explicit. He just drops it right in there, the Apostle Paul. 
And we're left, huh? Ian, most likely in his earlier teaching to the Corinthians, he had spent a lot of time talking to them and teaching them about angels. So what is going on here? Well, I'm going to give it my best shot, which I think is really the, what's going on here, but I'm not sure. But here's my shot. You ready? The Apostle Paul is a rabbi. He's a brilliant rabbi. He's unpacking the early chapters of Genesis. It's all over this text. And if you remember in Genesis 1 and 2, when God creates the world, Genesis 3, what happens to the world? It just goes to smash, disintegration. Sin and death enter the world, and Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden. God's perfect place and design. And God sends an angelic realm, or at least one angel, to protect the garden. The last verse in Genesis 3. So angels, one of their primary roles in the created order is to protect the integrity of God's glory and his design and creation. We also know from other texts in the New Testament that angels are very aware of earthly realities. So what is Paul saying? This is what I think he's saying. To the Corinthians and to us. And I think Paul had a southern accent. Heads, heads up, y'all. A little pun there for the heads, those of you who are following. Heads up, y'all. When you gather for worship, there are more guests at your worship service than you can imagine. So ponder this carefully. Reflect the glory of God's design appropriately when you worship. Wow. Paul is delicately navigating with brilliance and flair the principles of timeless creation design and the ever-changing cultural dynamics that we express in that design. Paul is also, notice, very explicitly in the text affirming that gender is not something we decide it is not something that we socially construct, but it is deeply anchored to our physiology and anatomy. I don't know if uh, you saw Diane Sawyer's television interview. It was one of the most awaited interviews of, our, uh, of the whole year with Bruce Jenner. Now, some of you, I remember Bruce Jenner when he won the decathlete gold medal. I mean, this guy was an amazing athlete. and He's in the 60s now, amazing person. The interview is about Bruce Jenner in his 60s changing into a woman. If you've seen, it's a powerful interview. Now, as I watched it, I recognized this, a person of great sensitivity and goodness in many ways as he shared. And we must appreciate the real challenges and the suffering and difficulty of those who experience gender dysphoria. It's a very real thing. And we are called to love fellow image bearers of God in any community, everyone, including the transgender community. But let me be very clear. Changing one's gender is contrary to the teachings of Holy Scripture. What is Paul saying? Paul is laying out the divine design principles 
understanding cultural dynamics. And he is holding both of those two intention. Gospel tension. A timeless design and cultural dynamics that be, need to be navigated with love. What is Paul not saying? Several things. This text again is taught so poorly and so wrongly and to such abuse. First, Paul is not saying this text is only for women. Notice verses 3 and 4, would you? That the creation order implications for men is first on Paul's mind. That men are to recognize and embrace God's authority over them. And so men, young and old this morning who are here, you are not your own authority. Jesus is your authority. He is your master if you've embraced him as Lord and Savior. So men, are you in submission to Christ and his will for your life? Moment by moment, every day, everywhere you are, in your work, in your life. Notice also Paul's explicit Trinitarian template in verse 3 that Paul says that the head of Christ is God. This text speaks powerfully to more than just women. Secondly, Paul is not saying that everything he is saying is merely cultural. Hear me very carefully. This text is often washed away as mere cultural, basically nonsense by many people who teach the Scriptures today. But that is to abuse this text beyond belief. This text is wrongfully dismissed as having no relevance, as simply all cultural, but Paul weaves together the very cultural realities and that which is timeless, the creation design. And he appeals to the Corinthians to navigate and respect timeless design with cultural differences in a God-honoring way. Ever-changing cultural dynamics matter. They do. So do timeless creation design matter as well. We need to discern the difference, don't we? and live in this tension with gospel love and humility. Thirdly, Paul is not saying that women are prohibited from speaking or using their gifts in the church. This is often misunderstood in this section. In the broader section of chapters 11 through 14, Paul gives very specific instructions to a very specific thing. We really can't grasp what he's saying. But they're ripped out of context and if they are, they're not only contradictory, but they're nonsensical. Let me just give one example. Here in chapter 11, verse 5, you'll notice women are participating actively in the first century church worship service, praying and prophesying. They are speaking out loud. And then in chapter 14, verse 34, Paul says women should be silent. But Paul's brilliant. He's not talking out of both sides of his mouth. There's an understanding of different cultural dynamics at worker and specific things he has in mind. If you want to have more interaction on this at a more rigorous, thoughtful level, we have a wonderful paper. It's many pages long, but it's really accessible and good. Navigates through these texts. It's on our website. It's on the front page of our website today. It's called Exploring God's Design for the Role of Women in the Church. I encourage you to download it. Get a PDF and walk through it. If you have questions, talk with us. It gives much more depth on each text and how it fits together in a cohesive, coherent whole. So I would encourage you to, to, to take advantage of that. So what we've tried to say is, first of all, why are these words so hard to hear? We tried to explain why it's so challenging to hear what Paul is saying. We've also tried to unpack a little bit, what is Paul saying? What is he not saying in this text? But thirdly, let's ask this question. How should we live these words? How should we live them? How do we take these truths and principles and tone and heart and bring it home to our lives, Christ's community. Let me suggest three things that are really important, I think. First, 
all of us, we need to embrace creation designed by faith, whether we are young or old, male or female, a child, a student, whatever. There is a creation design that we understand through the eyes of faith. This is very important for us to grasp. We might have a pushback this morning, whether we're a man or woman or however. I mean, we might have a big pushback because it seems so foreign to our cultural context, and I understand that. What God declares in Genesis 1 is not only good, but he declares it is very good. It is still very good today. Yes, it is broken by sin. Our relationships and all of life. But God said his design is very good. He's never changed his mind. Kathy Keller writes so beautifully about these tensions and challenges as a woman. She writes in a book called Jesus, Justice, and Gender. And she looks to, surprisingly, Oxford's brilliant C.S. Lewis to navigate this world. She quotes C.S. Lewis, and it's a little longer quote, but it's so good. I'd love you to stay with me as I read it. Lewis writes, the kind of equality which implies that equals are interchangeable, like counters or identical machines, is among humans a legal fiction. It may be a useful legal fiction, but in church we turn our back on fictions. One of the ends for which sex was created was to symbolize to us the hidden things of God. One of the functions of human marriage is to express the nature of the union between Christ and his church. We have no authority to take the living and sensitive figures which God has painted on the canvas of our nature and shift them about as if they were geometrical figures. With the church, we are further in. For there we are dealing with male and female not merely as facts of nature, but as the live and awful shadows of realities utterly beyond our control and largely beyond our direct knowledge. Kathy Keller wisely points us to the truth that when we monkey about with gender roles, we do it at our peril and our culture's peril inevitably. What did God mean to accomplish by making us male and female? I can't answer that fully. But she writes, why not some unisex being? or a hermaphrodite, or someone able to choose for themselves whether to generate or incubate life? Why assign different roles? She writes, deep mysteries of revelation hang on our gender and living out our assigned roles. Hear me carefully. This is something we must not miss. We must remember that equality is not the same thing as equivalency. Let me say that again. We must remember that equality is not the same thing as equivalency. Our differences anchored in gender, in design, and in physiology are not a matter of value, but of God's good design. In our fallen world, there have always been and always will be sinful men and women who oppress, despise, abuse, and discriminate other gender. It's just a tragedy of the fall throughout human history of how men and women have treated each other, particularly men treating women. 
And we should address this matter of justice. It matters to God and it needs to matter to us. But in the church, we have access to both repentance and forgiveness, don't we? We have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit so that men and women can resume their glorious mantle of differences and live together as God's new creation community and showcase God's Trinitarian dance to the world. Let me say just a brief word about domestic abuse. It's never right or appropriate for a husband or wife to mistreat each other, to verbally abuse or physically abuse the other. And it's never right to appeal to a distorted biblical teaching to do it. And if you're involved, either being an abuser or abused, don't deny it, deal with it. Talk to one of our pastors, talk to me. We'll get you connected to a professional. We've got to address this. We need to embrace God's design through the eyes of faith. Secondly, we need to live out the gospel with reconciliation with great hope. The good news of the gospel not only reconciles us to God, it also reconciles us sinners to one another. What do we mean by reconcile? It's a word that we don't often use. What this means is a rich word where two parties, two people that were, or persons that were separated by some kind of injury or hurt are brought back together in a healing and restored relationship of intimacy again. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says the gospel restores us not only and reconciles us to God, but to one another. And isn't it interesting, 2 Corinthians 5, right after he says we're a new creation, he says we've been given a ministry of reconciliation. And often we hear that in terms of ethnic reconciliation, and that is hugely important, but we often miss another reconciliation we are called to embrace, and that's gender reconciliation in the church. Ever since sin and death entered the world back in Genesis 3, history records this, and today's headlines record this. Men and women, instead of lovingly completing one another, have been struggling to compete with and control one another. And this has led to such great strife between men and women and a great deal of injustice and oppression, particularly for women. And as a man, let me express to you my sincere sorrow and my deep sadness to the women in this room who have felt the brunt of discrimination in the home and the workplace and society and yes, the church because of distorted teaching. The gospel-centered local church should be painting a different picture to the world, one of gender complementarity, one of mutual respect and one of sacrificial love. If you look at Jesus carefully, you know that he did not abrogate creation design, he affirmed it. But he also raised the level of women far above anyone else in his current culture and he respected them and he loved them. Jesus also taught a radically different view of leadership. He taught a leadership of authority, not of coercion, but of sacrificial love and servanthood. See, the gospel transforms us to relate to one another in the church in a new way with gentleness and humility, serving one another without demand or discrimination. Ultimately, it is not so much about who takes the lead in the dance of love, it's more about our mutual submission to the Lordship of Christ in all our lives and our relationships and to one another in the love of Christ. In Philippians chapter two, Paul calls the Christian church 
just such an extraordinary model of love. And it's a model that Jesus gave to us. When he emptied himself and voluntarily submitted to the will of God the Father, he entered this world destroyed by sin and evil. Jesus, the most powerful being, can you imagine that? The most powerful being in the universe became a servant even to the point of death on the cross for you and me. You and I might be rescued from death, eternal death and given a new creation of life and be invited into his new creation community to experience the life we were created to live in Genesis 1 and 2. Don't miss Paul. The same writer says Jesus' dissent was one of willing consent. In voluntary and joyful submission with unimaginable sacrifice, Jesus the Son let God the Father take the lead in a Trinitarian dance. In that Garden of Gethsemane, hear Jesus' words. Father, not my will but yours. And on those words, the universe held its breath and all of fallen creation held its breath at that moment. All for a Trinitarian dance of love. Lastly, we need to approach cultural differences of love. That's the focus here. That's the big focus. Isn't it interesting, 1 Corinthians 13, this love chapter we quote all, all the time, is really plucked in the middle of how we get along in church. Paul ends his poem of love with these words, now abide faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So friends, the church should be the one place where there is such beautiful diversity and there is true unity, knit together by Christian love. See, we are called to be a people and place who live well with our differences by loving well in our differences, who showcase the glory of God to a lost and broken world. And Paul reminds us this morning, not only is the world watching us, but it seems like the heavenly realm is watching us too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a difficult text. We feel that we look through it dimly. We don't understand it fully. But Lord, what we understand, may you apply to each one of our lives this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.